All right, so welcome everyone to another episode of the Checkmate Podcast, a political podcast by Tenementian Media. I am Davy sitting for Page, right? You know, Japina and Japot. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, gonna be a vibe, gonna be a nice conversation with a lovely guest, a lovely guest, right? Last year, personally, I was in like this whole niche thing because I usually have niches, you know, people in the life, and that's when I go through this very neurotic kind of thinking right i don't know if it's just me but um i was i don't know what happened I was, I was just very much interested in like prison reforms but like like on a global scale i don't know what happened it just became a thing and um i like a lot of angela davis like a lot i was a lot, a lot of angela davis I, I, I i'm quoting her books right now it's crazy and it's a lot around prison reform, uh, not even reform, just prison abolish, abolish, abolition. Can't pronounce that word, so we're just gonna move. What's in the gate when I try to say? Um, <laughs> and hopefully they understand. And there were like, you know, how to imagine, you know, and not even imagine, but to dream radically in abolishing, abolish, that's the word right there, abolishing prisons and how we see prisons. And, you know, when down a huge road when it comes to like criminal law and how you know persons are prosecuted and how the prison systems work and blah blah blah. I'm not a lawyer, so that's okay. I went down a whole rabbit hole to learn things, and I wanted a more holistic view of it, especially from like a Caribbean manner, because like Angela Davis is from the U.S. Um, for persons who don't know, Dr. Angela Davis, Wikipedia, Google, camera explainer. So like when so her whole you know I didn't want to I'm American centralized view of how the Caribbean will look so I'm there and I'm doing research on like different scholars who you know study prison reform and 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 prisons and law um in a Caribbean centric view right especially Anglophone Caribbean so that's just me so you know there's a for internet for like a while and I think it was around October November I came across this wonderful article. Um, um, it was the World Death Penalty Day. I think that was it. Yeah, um, uh, World Day Against Death Penalty. That's October ten. There we go. So it was October, and I say young lady as if this woman is not older than me. So <laughs> forgive me. So here I am, and you know, I'm like whoa. <laughs> I'm like whoa, and I'm reading. I'm reading, and I'm like yo, we have to get this girl, and I'm going in the group. Because I'm like, yo, I want, I know, check me come back next year, which is this year. And I'm like, yo, I want to have a special episode of talking about Destiny. Like, I want to know more about this work and this project because I'm finding, I'm trying to find articles of more about this project, but we can't find it. We know how Caribbean media work, you know? We know them work already. So I'm like, yo, this would be pretty cool, X, Y, Z. So, you know, put it to the team and I'm saying, rrr, rrr, rrr. and, you know, I, you know, ju- just jump in on DMs and give God thanks to answer. <laughs> and yes, so the guest today is the brilliant Aneta Jackson. Absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, she got money, so I'm just going to read out the whole resume if you want to understand the level of what we are working right now. So <laughs> she has a LLB from the University of West London and a postgraduate degree in law from the University of West London and a legal education certificate from Norman Money Law School, which I've come to understand she got that very recently. Um, she's a communication consultant at Black Feminist Fund. 
she's a storyteller at Intersec Antigua, which me soon talk about because like favorite blog site right now, like the stories over there fire. And um, she is a former project manager at Greater Caribbean for Life, um, where she assisted with a project called Building a Platform for Abolition, strengthen, strengthening the anti-death penalty movement in Barbados, the Eastern Caribbean. You understand? So that was a project I book up on. So Aneta, you know, good day to you. Just introduce yourself to the, the whole team and, you know, the listeners and stuff. Well, as I said before, I live on a road and bagel somebody on a motorbike. When the Lord knows what. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. You see that? They just don't want me to be great. You said all these nice things about how I'm brilliant and I da 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 da. Here comes a motorbike to mash up my moment. That's crazy. Um, Thank you for the wonderful. Well, wonderful introduction. It's wild because every time people introduce me to things, I'm just like, no, that's not me. Who? No, can't be me. But um, yeah, I I am a lawyer person, as I like to say, um, and I have been in love with law in many different shapes and forms um, since I was a sperm. Um, so I have just had this ever-evolving, ever-changing relationship with law and loving law in multiple different ways, which sort of led me on to doing human rights law when I was in undergrad. And in undergrad, my dissertation was about prison conditions in Antigua and Barbuda and how what prison reform should look like, what the criminal justice system needs to do to have a better outcome for not only victims of crime but even for the perpetrators and you know looking at readjusting the whole purpose of sentencing what does that look like in our context as Caribbean people um I guess more specific to what we're talking about here today being criminal justice reform and the death penalty in the Caribbean I should I guess speak more in depth about my time as a project manager with Greater Caribbean for Life which is a wonderful, wonderful organization that is a collective of individual activists and groups who are tackling human rights issues in the criminal justice system in the greater Caribbean, which covers all the way up to Jamaica, but the project specifically focused on Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean. But a lot of the team at GCL is from all over the region um, the current chairperson is based in Trinidad. The co-chair is from Puerto Rico. The project manager who held the space before I took over is the late Nancy Anderson, who was an amazing human rights lawyer in Jamaica, and um, Professor Lloyd Barnett, who teaches at Norman Manley Law School, is also a part of GCL. And so it was such a great experience to learn about the struggle from people who have been pushing for this for such a long time and now I think that I'm doing the ramble but um yeah it's such a good thing to I guess translate what you've learned in school and blend that with your passions and do something tangible that helps to push the things forward that you so aptly care about if you get where I'm coming from. Yeah, man, understand, understand perfectly. And um, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> thanks a whole lot. Um, but before I, we even 
talk about, you know, um, um, Greater Caribbean for Life, just explain to me, you understand, and the rest of the listeners, what exactly is the penalty, the legal definition, because honestly, before I come to my senses, that was before last year, um, I suppose I'm learning things, um, my idea of death penalty was like the scene in our Pirates of the Caribbean, I think at the second one, when the child, the series of pirates were being hanged, and that was always just my thing that I use a lot of imagery. So just give me the legal definition of death penalty, especially as it relates to the Anglophone Caribbean. Well, in the English-speaking Caribbean, our legislation doesn't specifically define what the death penalty necessarily is, but it does it does outline that it's a punishment for a crime. So in Antigua, our offenses against the person's act, well, everybody have offenses against the person's act, really, and most of the legislation is the exact same section, section two, that says the punishment for murder, you know, shall be, the person shall be sentenced to suffer death. And that is the term that is used the, a person who is convicted of murder shall suffer death. Or in Grenada, they say that shall be liable to suffer death. But it's really that, that who, the crime that you commit, the punishment is death. And so the death penalty is for the crime that is committed, you die. So it's this very, very bleak, very morbid, but that's what it is. And the most recent execution that we have had in the Caribbean, or the last execution, I should say, was in St. Kitts in 2008. So it's not necessarily something that is far removed from us. It's not a Pirates of the Caribbean colonial days thing, but it's a practice that has only recently been sort of muted in our context. Um, and then one of the things that I had even sort of heard recently, so I was doing my conversion course at Norman Manley Law School because, you know, if you study overseas and you come back into the Caribbean, you have to go and do your six months at either Norman Manley, Hugh Wooding Law School in Trinidad or Eugene Dupouche in the Bahamas. And my wonderful, wonderful criminal practice lecturer Mr. Robert Fletcher he's the goat um, if I ever go to Jamaica I have to buck up on him but he basically said to us that back in the day when people were receiving a death sentence in Jamaica it was a very very scary scene because the whole courtroom is silent everybody has to stand up the judge have to put on a black robe and stuff over his head and then the bailiff would get up and say Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. All those who are here, come and draw near. A sentence of death will be passed. And it's like some real movie scenes, you know. But he was explaining that to me. And the whole, you know, the whole thing just seemed so traumatic. But if the legislation says that, you know, if you do this, it's suffer death, that is such a very, it's a, it's a hard penalty. And so 
in our context, as much as the context is the same across any jurisdiction that has a death penalty and still uses it, someone is dying for something. And oftentimes when there are miscarriages of justice and given the slowness of our legal systems, somebody might get sentenced to death in 2022, but they're going to sit down in jail until 2035 and they might not have that sentence carried out until maybe 2040. Like, it's such a, it's such a very long, drawn-out process. And this is not to discount the feelings and the validity of the hurt and pain felt by the families of the individuals who those crimes are perpetrated against. Not at all. But it's just to say that most of the times the crimes that are committed in our society are as a result of the failures of society, the failures of governments. And we need to look at other ways to sort of avoid a sort of, you know, avoid crime. Because as we've seen, when the rope was swinging and the hangman was working, that did not deter people from crime. So what really is the root cause, if you get where I'm coming from. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And like, Marosa here, the feminist theory, I jump out and I say, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I understand. Like, late night readings be paying off. I get it. And I know you mentioned, you know, the, the case study of the years it takes um, when it comes with death penalty. And I remember the death penalty project just browsing around the, the, the website. And if, all right, so tell me, yeah, I'm going to tell the team for link the website on our website on this episode page so you can like easy things but i know there was a story um as everybody know i mean to the history side i tell me yeah so you know i'm gonna find the history part there was a, a case study of earl pratt and Ivan morgan i never knew about them um they were sentenced to be executed in 1979 and it was like 2007 i think yeah. until like that until like they were granted parole and release and you imagine sitting there waiting for so long like i just like that whole story um i'm like yo bruh like if we could have talked properly i still know in law class like i hope law students are actually learning these things because when would that teach me this in my physics class then but this (laughs) this is great things to know and understand and um so i know death penalty right? i get you death penalty right but i i want to break it up even more right when it comes to the history of gender and death penalty i know for for me personally i can remember witches um persons where they're labeled witches witches be sentenced to death just because you know the bare minimum just because like in the 16th and 17th century like but yeah honestly it's wild that you know throughout history since you have a history buff women have been villainized and so there's so much that happens um even if we just bring it to like a modern context even outside of people being sentenced to death for alleged witchcraft even though they just gave their husband lemon and honey to drink and the cold gone um like there's so much that happens in terms of women and the criminal justice system and the death penalty if we look at the issue of 
domestic violence in the Caribbean. And domestic violence is a problem. It's still underreported in our region. Um, there's still not a lot of, I guess, access to support for women who experience domestic violence. But there are times when women in those abusive situations have had enough and they snap. And what happens is the man ends up dead. And what is that? That is murder. And oftentimes what is going to happen is that when the woman is going through the whole process of trial, the prosecution might not necessarily present the woman in the best light. They're going to sort of victim blame, ask why she never left, why she's still here, and then say that, you know, there was uh, there were elements of premeditation to this, even though when we look at the broader picture, we can understand that this is sort of years upon years upon years of consistent abuse, and it sadly led up to this. And so we have that aspect where when women are before juries, society will look at them and they will sort of match that woman against the stereotypes of what we have in our heads of what a woman is supposed to be and they will sentence accordingly and that is something that happens consistently across the board they're like oh a woman not supposed to do this so you might see that you know a woman might get a few more years under sentence or people do not necessarily feel sorry for women in certain situations and that's stuff that should not happen and that needs a lot more education, a lot more like a gentler touch to how we view things because the criminal justice system is not a place where people are coddled. It's not a place where you, as a person who either did a crime or are accused of a crime, where it's even okay and what people often forget as well when they're thinking about crime and criminal justice people forget that separate and apart from what happens in the courtroom there's the court of public opinion that's what happening on the outside on the street the man on the corner and the woman in the market they are making their own opinions and forming their own judgments and that has an impact as well so there's so much that goes on there's so much that goes on but Man, I just, it's just really, it's a topic that it, it is, it's really important to me. And generally speaking, understanding how we need to do more for people who are victims of crime, for people who are defendants in the system, for people who are convicted and in prison, we need to do more for them as a society we need to do more for ourselves in terms of educating ourselves, being open to understanding that the issues that people face and the relationships that they have with the criminal justice system, it stays with them and it impacts them going forward. And people, a lot, a lot of the times, people forget that individuals in prison, despite whatever crime they committed, that they are people. And there's a lot of dehumanizing that goes on in terms of women. Women are heavily dehumanized by the system, 
even if it's not a situation where murder is involved, if we flip it around and look at, you know, situations where women are victims of sexual assault and rape, the script is flipped on them and there is victim blaming. So there's even victim blaming when the woman is the accused as well as when they are the victim. So there's so much that happens and there's not a lot of sympathy for women in the criminal justice system because society just thinks that what is a woman doing committing crime and not thinking what led her to this point and how can we help her and support her so that this is not something that occurs for other women who are in this situation. Justice seem very active and the underlying issues that maybe persons are in abusive situations um, which brings on anxiety and brings on stress and brings on depression. Those things are not taken into account and plays a role in how persons of the minority gender um, are prosecuted. Right? That may I try to say. That that's all I that that's all I'm getting from what you're saying, right? But in that same breath, same breath, yeah, that makes sense. In, the, in that same breath. How, how w- would you, ass- would, and I get it, not everybody's a feminist, right? I get it. But how would, is one of the solutions to that would inviting more persons, not inviting, but creating more spaces for persons of the minority gender to practice law and even to have a more interest in human rights law and criminal law and the way, like even judicial um, writing and, and, and creating laws. Is that one of the solutions to even tackling the way how death sentencing and, and, and the law is seen in, um... Father God, I come to you, please make this nice. Yeah, that may I try say. <laughs> but yes, I completely, completely understand. Um, but yes, it really would assist, it would help if our legislatures in the region reflected society in terms of the breakdowns. So in most, most, nearly all of the Caribbean countries, there's very, very, very few women that hold seats in parliament. And so that means that when you're looking at the laws that are passed, the bills that are introduced, they're not gender responsive and they're not gender sensitive. And so they do not take into account the perspectives of a large chunk of the population and they do not account for the issues that a chunk of our population faces. So our legislature needs to reflect the people that live and work and breathe and contribute to our society. And when you have systems where women are shut out, where persons in society who form part of groups who are often ostracized are shut out, then you have situations where what comes out of parliament, the policies of governments and cabinets, they are focused on single issues despite the fact that women and so many of us do not live single issue lives to sort of 
paraphrase and pull quote from Audre Lorde. Um, but it's just such a disservice when that happens. But it really has an impact on how our legislation works when we do not have enough women who are prosecutors in the offices of our directors of public prosecutions we are doing a disservice to how that works when we do not have enough women who are judges we are doing a disservice to how that works when we do not have enough women who are legislative drafters that impacts you know the wording of legislation how things sound how things look we have a problem and so it's not necessarily I would say like a feminist issue because it's not something that only feminists can get behind and get on board, but it's something that we should all sit down and think, hey, does my government reflect me? Do I see my issues being addressed by the people that I have voted into the House of Representatives? as women do we see our issues being addressed are they even tabled in parliament you know what is what is the problem why is it that you know we know that things like sexual harassment exist but we don't have any legislation in jamaica in antigua in grenada for sexual harassment in workplaces in our labor codes because it's not there because there's no political will to put that in because our needs are not reflected by our representatives. Why is it that we aren't looking to change the way our criminal justice system works because we've been operating in one way for so long and we've not seen any changes in society based on how we're operating? Like we are prosecuting all these people and we're locking them up, but still we have reoffending despite the fact that, you know, they're serving prison time. What are we doing to change the attitudes of people in prisons as well as the attitudes of people in the public? What are we doing to make those necessary essential changes to the problem and finding the root of the problem instead of just throwing people behind bars? And going back to the point that you brought up, all the way at the beginning of our conversation about you know abolition what does abolition look like what really is abolition does abolition mean that people are running free on the road just committing crime no it doesn't and we need to have i guess more fulsome education on what that is what that means and how we can truly have an effective criminal justice system that focuses on not just the crime aspect but on justice and what does that justice mean is it restorative is it transformative how are we helping people overcome their past or their lives with crime how are we helping them to reintegrate and be better persons and contributors to society in ways that are not shaming them yeah all right, love that. You know, me have some quotes to collect right there. All right. <laughs> absolutely love the explanation. Absolutely. And I love how you break it down. So it's never really too technical for me to understand because it, it me understand. And I'm like, 
when it comes to the IQ, when they look at the bottom, then probably Melissa can understand. But thank you so much for <laughs> thank you so much for explaining. Um, but few things. Um, that I bring up brought up Jamaica passed the sexual harassment bill last year October. I think it's around October. So um, th- th- yeah, they did pass the sexual harassment bill. Um, in Parliament, both houses approve it's in place. Um, it wasn't market well. I'm gonna say that. Um, per anything passing Parliament, so, <laughs> like everything passing Parliament with minorities, it's not market well. So I mean, not would not be surprised if a lot of persons don't know about that bill. Um, but it was passed. Um, I, I, another bill that was passed geared towards the minority is um the disabled um act bill the disabled act was passed um the episode not not before this one before this one um that we spoke to um somebody um fra- who worked on that bill so you can just go ahead and check that out so but hopefully we can listen with a sexual harassment bill in in the future um I know Jamaica, a lot of Jamaican prison systems come from colonial days like the 17th and 18th century where these prisons um penitentiaries were holding cells for enslaved, right? And they have not been upgraded. They have not been changed, right? I want to strip that down further and speak about womanhood and prisons. Can you speak about, like, the prison system itself and womanhood and how women are treated um, in these prisons and taking them into account their experiences, whether that be mentally and physically and sexually, while you know they're supposed to like reflect upon their crimes and i put that reflect upon their crimes in quotation big right there so is that something that you can you know address well women and prisons there's so much that can be said on this topic this topic alone women and prisons could be like a series of podcasts on many many things um but as part of this, as part of the project for the Eastern Caribbean and Barbados, last year's World Day Against Death Penalty theme was specific to women and prisons and women and the death penalty. So I really had a lot of in-depth conversations with sort of activists, you know, even outside of the Caribbean who focus on women and prison conditions and women and the death penalty. And it was such a wonderful sort of learning experience, exchange and dialogue that really sort of, I guess, informed my own personal activism, my own personal, I guess, views on the all expansive realm of feminism and what that covers as a woman even outside of feminism because you know as you've mentioned not everyone is a feminist but just the humanitarian aspects of you know women and these conditions and the fact that our prisons in the Caribbean are under-resourced and underfunded because a lot of times our ministers they will take the position that prisoners can't vote and because you can't vote i'm not going to do much for you because you can't do anything for me um and so we have situations where like in jamaica the women's prisons aren't necessarily retrofitted with facilities that are helpful 
for women because you know every month or every couple of months depending on how your body works you're gonna have a period and do we have the facilities for that in prisons do we have the necessary like the team to assist with those things because some people have really bad periods and you know it's not looking great um how do you I guess humanize the situation and most of the times when you sit down and talk to people about these things their first sort of throwback is oh then they commit the crime then they know what they're gonna do a jail then they they're not find a sweet life but that's not the point you know the point is that these people are still people these women are still people and they still have to go through these things um so they need to have these resources there even separate and apart from resources because of the sort of environment that prison is and how all prisons are structured you know there might be a hierarchy and stuff like that inside of the prison where you know women are they face you know abuse in prisons but there's no one there to do any intervention because people don't feel sorry for them and there's just a lot that happens that we are silent to and there's a lot that people are trying to i guess vocalize but they're silenced and as you mentioned our prisons are colonial old time prisons that have not been upgraded not been updated to you know change with the times most of these prisons are overcrowded and have more prisoners than space a capacity to hold them what is happening even if you're looking at our system of remand oftentimes in most countries i can speak for antigua we do not have a remand facility like that so people who are on remand are sharing cells with people who are convicted of crime and then that itself opens up a whole another kind of worms because people are going in without having i guess committed a crime in in a lot of instances but then they leave having been exposed to criminal networks and so on not a lot is being done to sort of penetrate and rehabilitate and transform and resource and help people who are in prison and we oftentimes forget that we need to be doing these things we need to be upgrading our prisons we need to be ensuring that there's sanitation facilities for women to have access to proper sanitary pads and so on access to therapy because therapy and mental health is not something that is even properly spoken about there's a lot a lot of problems that we have and we need to spend a lot more time focusing on solutions to these problems that we face because even here sitting down having this conversation you know it's bringing to the forefront of my mind and I'm sure it's bringing to the forefront of your mind that we have a lot of problems but how are we sort of strategizing to work towards the solutions that we want to see for the problems that we know we are facing Mhm. I understand. I get you. And I I I said before, you know, Caribbean policies are very reactive. <laughs> they don't really they, they don't address the issue at the get go. 
You know? Them just, like, me, listen, I don't know them people they want, but listen, I never study policy, and I my field for study policy, like, but us knows it not work. You understand? As a <laughs> dear friend of mine yeah. said, you not for be a chef and no say yo the food and taste good. You understand? Be Christina in Oshade. But still, exactly. it's it's just it it just the, the and them problems there have been here for years, you know, for years. And oh, years it's, and it's years and oh. years. <laughs> it's crazy. But um meet of the matter why we're here. Um, this project that I came across, uh, building a platform for abolishing, strengthening the anti-death penalty movement in Barbados and the East Caribbean. And uh, I just never found, never find, sorry, Jesus, I never find enough information on it. And I, I was really, I was invested, you know, I was really invested, um, not from a legal side, but just, you know, as a citizen of the Caribbean, you know, always interested in different movements and collectives and, and people doing like so much meaningful work. Like it's something I'm always interested in. So just, just you know, explain to me that project. What was the what was the visions and the missions of the project? What was the outcome of the project? What was accomplished and, and like just the whole overview of what you know this this amazing work that you guys are doing over there. Well, this project started. Well, this project is even larger than me. It's larger than my sort of bit in the project. And I sort of came, I came on the project in 2020 and the project wrapped up December last year. So I was on the project for about a year and seven months, which was the most impactful year and couple months of my life because I learned so much I evolved so much I grew so much and sort of like you I had like a deep dive into a broader spectrum of issues that sort of informed my personal politics if you get where I'm coming from um so the project was a partnership with Death Penalty Project which is based in London in the UK they were the legal team that led the Pratt and Morgan case that you found and was so excited about. So their attorneys were the ones that, you know, got that sort of justice for Pratt and Morgan and set that principle that you can't have people sitting down on death row with an indefinite date hanging over their heads for death. And the situation with Pratt and Morgan was such that, you know, they went to the gallows multiple times and then they sent them back. Because like, oh, no, we're not going to do it all today. So imagine that traumatic thing where you're approaching. Wait, 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 wait pause. Work. So yeah, tell me, say, after you build up the mental capacity, say, yo, like, death. Yeah, yes, ready. yes. And I'm going to go look yes, for you and tell you, say, yo. Exactly. Bro. Yeah, not today, not today. Another time. Listen, exactly. So that that is that's what happens, or that's what happened. Past tense, because we don't have death sentences anymore. They're commuted to life sentences because you know human rights concerns are being taken into consideration. Air quote. Um, but that's what happened, and so. Their, their legal team were the ones that did that case back in the day. And so we're thankful for their work on that. 
Um, so the partnership consisted of the Death Penalty Project, the World Coalition Against the Death Penalty, University of the West Indies, um, Greater Caribbean for Life, the St. Vincent and the Grenadines Human Rights Association, and it was a coalition with them, and they got funding from the European Union to sort of have sensitization in the Eastern Caribbean and Barbados around the death penalty and abolition and what that looks like and criminal justice reform and what that means in the context of the death penalty, as well as you know doing research into the current attitudes about the death penalty and if the public itself have you know shifted their position from back in the day when people just, just shout hang them and gather up in the square to go and watch somebody get hung um but yeah that project it started in 2018 and 2018 was a very very i guess powerful year for the abolition movement in the caribbean because that was the year that the CCJ, the Caribbean Court of Justice, struck down the mandatory death penalty in Barbados, which was a huge, huge move. So that kind of just changed the legal platform or the legal framework around the death penalty in the Caribbean, because now there's a precedent that people can refer to or adopt to say that you can't just automatically sentence someone to death. It needs to be the worst of the worst of the worst cases for this to happen. And so that gave defendants, you know, some sort of hope that our legal framework was moving to a space where human rights concerns are being tabled and being adopted and input into judgments. Um, so the project was aimed specifically at target countries from the Eastern Caribbean, St. Lucia, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Grenada, Antigua and Barbuda, and Barbados around sort of challenging those preconceived ideas that the public has around the death penalty challenging those ideas that people in government and prominent positions have around finally standing up to go into parliament to say that we are no longer going to have the death penalty in our legislation because even though we are in a space now as a region where we no longer hang people because the death penalty remains an active living part of our offenses against the persons act for Antigua and Jamaica and like a criminal code for Grenada, we have a situation where because it exists, because it's there, it can be used and there is a justification for its use because it is law, it's on the books. And we have a lot of sort of legislation like that or a lot of sections in legislation like that that are dangerous to still be present on the books at this time in our lives. So 
that is that is the danger so even though we will not get up today and turn on news and have tvj say to us that somebody got sentenced to death and they're gonna swing today or turn on abs and somebody say you know that 1735 is gonna do a clean out and hang people we don't live in a space where that happens but if we take into context trinidad where we have their current director of public prosecutions and their current attorney general, they are very keen on saying, well, the death penalty is law. We have our savings clause that keeps it in our legislation and we can use it. And so Trinidad has been actively working to resume the practice of hanging people and they have a case that's currently being deliberated by the Privy Council in London around the death penalty and the nature of it. But there's even only so much that that appellate court can do because you can't just outright tell somebody that you can't hang anyone because it's unlawful when it is in fact very much alive and living and legal in their system that is something that our legislature would have to do. Um, so the project sort of aimed at chipping away at those stereotypes around the death penalty and chipping away at what is keeping the death penalty present and reminding people that the death penalty is not a deterrent because it does not stop crime from happening. It does not stop people from being murdered because the death penalty does not equate to zero crime. Because if it did, we would have no crime in the past when people were being hung. Um, it also sort of decided to sort of chip away at what are the real attitudes to the death penalty for people on the ground. Is it something that, you know, there's education around? What more do we need to do to educate people? And what more do we need to do to let people know that this is not something that needs to stay? And so that was sort of the purpose of that project. It was, I guess, a new approach to educating people around the death penalty and educating people around the necessity of abolition and what abolition would look like. Because a lot of people would say, oh no, if we move the death penalty, people are gonna continue to do this and that and a third, but then you can bring them to a point and say, well, currently we do not hang people and we are not necessarily overrun or running away with crime. And if you look at what was happening back in the past, and we did hang people, the numbers are not drastically different. There's no, there was no deep decline in crime then to compare to now. So then what is the real issue and what do we actually need to do to reduce and stop crime? So that was sort of the purpose and the role and the nature of the project to chip away at the preconceived notion in people's heads, in society's heads, in legislature's heads, 
that the death penalty stopped crime or even deterred crime and that it was something meaningful that we needed to keep because it's not. Yeah, man, I completely get you understand. You see now, you see, you see, you see? Like this, this, <laughs> this is why I had to explain the whole project. Because I just couldn't find resources that explain it in verbatim, like the wonderful job you guys are doing. So you said the project wrapped up last year. Yes, in December 2021, that project wrapped up, but the work of all of the groups who form part of that project still continues. So they still do work mm-hmm. on the ground resensitization, but that project was sort of like a collaborative approach that brought um, groups who are not even Caribbean-based, like the Death Penalty Project is not a Caribbean-based group. World Coalition Against the Death Penalty is not a Caribbean-based group, but it brought them together with their resources and their networks with the grassroots organizers in the Caribbean who are sort of doing this work, who are on the ground and are sitting with the people in the prisons to collaborate on like a larger scale with the funding to connect those efforts, connect the dots across the countries to push and make changes. All right, understand. So um I mean just just on behalf of the citizen. You know, I just just um I mean just thank you for the wonderful work that you guys put in almost two years <laughs> worth like I can't imagine. And I can't I, I, I can't imagine. Let me not say that. I cannot. But um, uh, I really like the explanation that you gave. And, you know, the, the especially knowing that you guys took a grassroots approach to it and that the work still continue. So it was the hope that in years to come, if this, I, you mentioned Trinidad, it was the hope that if, you know, the the project move from a project to a more um dynamic approach where Caribbean countries have eradicate eradicated that's the word so that may I, may I, may I kill rat Erad, um, eradicate the death penalty that um um that you know if they don't then in a couple more years another another coalition another movement another other groups can come together and work towards it you know there's power in imaginary imagining I've come to realize, um, yeah. and let me not to realize, I've come to discover that, you know, you imagine a world as, 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 as radical and as free and as non-exploitive as you can. And I feel like it's a sense of self-care. Um, that's not my quote. That's Lola Olufumi's quote from her book, um, Experiments in Imagination. This is not David being a philosopher. <laughs> somebody else but um yeah but but just thank you guys for that 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 we're doing and is there a report that persons can access um was that thing was it like written written words i i can check to see well i can check to see if a report on all that we've done throughout the project will be made public Mm -hmm. but a report has been done on the amount of people that we've reached because i had to stay up for like weeks to compile the report there's a lot of work that i had to mm-hmm. do for that so i will just check it and see if that sort of work would be made public because it would be nice for people to know you know the extent of the work that had been done we had an exoneree 
from the United States. His name is Juan Melendez. He's originally from Puerto Rico, but he was convicted in the U.S. and he spent many years in prison on death row for a crime that he did not commit. And he had appealed and appealed and appealed and no one was listening to him. And it took like one day someone with the modern advances of DNA realizing, oh, this is not this man's DNA, it's someone else. But he had lost so much time and having him come and sort of speak to people in the region to talk about the howling experiences of not only being in that space and knowing you didn't do it, but being around people who were convicted of crimes and having them talk about the fact that, you know, it's not something that they wanted to do. And if they had only had the resources and help, they would not be in this position and realizing that we need to do more for the people in our society and people in prison society has failed them because we're not doing enough to help them we're not doing enough to go to the root causes of why crime happens and why people engage in these activities and even looking at the fact that maybe some of these things shouldn't necessarily be crime because why are you arresting an addict for having possession of a substance instead of sending them to therapy and, re and rehab to overcome that addiction. Because when you send them to jail, you're not doing anything to fix the problem. And then they leave and they fall right back into the habit. So there's so much that has been done and unpacked, um, which would just be really great if you know people could have that report and see what was done. Um, so I'll chase up on that for you and I'll definitely send it your way. You mentioned grassroots organization and I know, I know this wasn't part of the discussion points that they sent over. And I was like, I'm, that's not, I'm never see, I'm see you, so I'm gonna it. But I just want to talk about one of the projects that you're on, that you're a part of, Intersect Antigua. Like, I'm a favorite black to read. Like, one of my favorite, one one of my favorite blogs to read, but mind you, because <laughs> I really love Rebel Men blog. But I, no, I really, no, you don't even understand. Like, I really love the work that you guys are doing. I cannot speak about that whole community. Well, Intersect Antigua. Intersect is really like my favorite thing to just well my favorite space to be my favorite set of people my favorite collective and I love them all so much um shout out to the team shout out to Aneka and Sarah they're our co-founders love them so much um shout out to Javier shout out to Nicholas shout out to Shannon shout out to everybody shout out to Nicole, shout out to, you know, my foot for doing some stuff sometimes. Um, <laughs> shout out to everyone on the team. It's just really, really great to be part of a group of people who they have ideas and they think the same way that you do and they want to make changes and they want to ensure that, you know, Caribbean feminisms are developed. Um, 
if you like our website, which is new and we're proud of it, um, I think like 90% of the artwork is done by our resident artist, Lucia. She is amazing. Love her. Um, so shout out to Lucia. Shout out to Willem, our intern, because he's great. Love him so much. Um, but Intersect, really and truly, for the people that don't know about Intersect, we are a collective of Caribbean and Caribbean feminists. We've coined the term Caribbean, um, who are connecting, not the truck, wow, um, who are connecting Caribbean feminists and Caribbean feminists through storytelling, art, and advocacy, because we believe that our stories are powerful and our stories have the ability to foster change and are dynamic. And you yourself, you said that when you read a story, you could resonate. You were like, wow, I can connect to this. And that is something that we are so happy that we're able to do, that we're able to connect people to each other through work that is powerful, through storytelling that is powerful, through art that means something to people because they can see themselves in these stories, they can see themselves in the artwork and they understand that the voices of a collective is important because we speak with many voices. Um, and so our wonderful co-founders, Aneka and Sarah, they started this movement back in 2015 when I was still in State College and they was doing this work as like a duo for a good while. Um, but, you know, as a young person, as a young feminist, I used to come along and help them with things. And then they decided, well, we want to expand the team because we realized that this work is very, very important and we need to sort of branch out. So that's how the team grew to have a lot more people. So we, they went from a team of two to a team of nine persons. And so now we're a collective and we do things together. We inform, the work is informed by each other. Everyone has input. And so all the work that you see that we put out is sort of a reflection of all of the members of the collective because it's something that we all care about. And um, that's really and truly what it is. And we've sort of been, I guess, challenging the face of what feminism is and what sort of feminist advocacy is, because most of the time people look at feminism through a very white lens. So our feminism, our politics is rooted in that sort of understanding that feminism is not for white women. Feminism is about the equity, the equality, and the upliftment of all women, despite the shades. It's not exclusive to a certain class of women. And so we understand that power and power that oppresses people, it is more than one thing. And that power has many faces. And, and the way that power oppresses people, oppresses people in different forms. So as black women, we face many different forms of oppression that are rooted in the same type of power. So gender being black and a woman, we face oppression based on the fact that we are women. We face oppression based on the fact that we are black. 
we face oppression as Black Caribbean women. We face oppression being Black Caribbean women based on our class, based on our race, based on our gender, based on our countries, you know, given the context of the fact that we are labeled as third world, even though we are the space that the global north has stolen so much resource from, and we are the ones that are feeding them and enhancing their lives with culture and richness and all the things. And so we understand that. And so our feminism is is anti-imperial, it's anti-colonial, anti-patriarchal, anti-capitalist, because we understand that capitalism as well is a problem that causes more problems for Black Caribbean women. And all those issues that I just spoke about, you know, colonialism, patriarchy, imperialism, capitalism, those things are not exclusive to white women and so our feminism is rooted in that in that there's so many things that impact us if we look at our current volume of stories volume two where we're focusing on environmental justice you might sit and be like how does plant what does planting a tree what does the environment and climate change have to do with feminism but then if we look at those things in a caribbean context our environment is our home and our environments, our safe spaces. When there is a hurricane and we are uprooted from our homes, when there's a volcanic eruption and we are uprooted from our homes and we are placed in shelters, we are open to so many dangers. Young girls face preying from older men in those volatile situations Studies have been done to show that when there's natural disasters, violence against women increases and sexual violence against women also increases because of the dangers that we are put in. Because there's no access to certain resources in those situations, period poverty increases and you don't have access to those things. And so it's not just about climate change, it's about my safety as a woman in the environment and how can I protect this environment to protect my safety and as well as how the environment, you know, agriculture, um, agriculture is a means to empowerment. We look at groups like Helen's Daughters in St. Lucia that are teaching women how to grow and feed, grow food and sustain themselves and use the food that they're growing to feed their families and turning that into businesses and that is not just environmental justice, that is feminism because you are empowering women and you are introducing women into fields, into avenues where they were shut out of because not a lot of women are business owners. Not a lot of women think that the subsistence farming that they do can even be important to plug in to the national export. Like, so it's really, really expansive and it's really dynamic. And so it just goes beyond that. It just goes beyond highlighting those issues. So even the storytelling, having people share their stories, it's really important because you're connecting through that work and you're forming those feminist coalitions through that storytelling. And that we understand that because we are telling these stories and we're forming these collectives, that we are 
loving each other radically and we are building that community around each other because we are Caribbean feminists, we're Caribbean feminists and we understand the struggles and the intersection of all of these issues, the intersection of gender, of race, of class, of color, of even our environment and the impact that it has on us as black Caribbean women. And then because we understand these things, we can then have advocacy that is transformative, that is restorative, that is reparatory, that is humanitarian and feminist and it heals us and it restores our communities and it transforms our communities from violence. And so, yeah, it's just so many things because despite us not really looking at it that way, everything in life is gendered and it has impacts on us as Caribbean people. And I really think that I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> no, like, listen, listen, don't tell me I didn't know the editing team, like, them just have a joke, Bill. But, like, it's if we could talk like this now, oh I feel like it's so much easier. I feel like it's nice. But the, I, I'm, I'm positive, like, every, every woman, non binary person, queer person could find themselves in one of the stories over there if we, we have a medium because there's there's short stories and there's there there's um societal critique and there's poetry the poems are great by the way um saying this i'm somebody who don't read a lack of poetry but um it really 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 important work I, I swear like you won't be disappointed and don't don't worry it's soon similar you know somebody dms one of them they have bigger interview just just give me a minute the project gonna come off the ground soon but <laughs> thank you so much Anita thank you so much so much this was supposed to be like a 30 minute thing and it was like an hour almost an hour and 30 minutes but I saw life go you know we'll have fun over here usually me I always think they don't say I'm going to ask I'm going to ask script and ask about the questions <laughs> but thank you so much for coming and explaining the work um that you know you were doing and are doing now and you know just send my praise Davy. That's because other people in Tenement yeah, I mean, does do the side, so just in my opinion, or or you know, love and gratitude to them. Um, all the groups that you are part of for the amazing work that you guys are doing. Um, what else we need to say before we end the episode? Um, this whole episode started out because of a deep dive, <laughs> and I'm grateful that I found somebody who a group that was actually doing the work. Um, and just again, thank you. Um, my, my current deep dive is, um, I don't know why, is the way immigration and xenophobia in the Caribbean. Reason being, I just finished reading Pachinko. Um, I, like, listen, I was, I, re, I read Pachinko because I saw the trailer and I'm like, you mean how fave? And I was like, yeah. oh, this is a book, let me buy the book and read. Yes, oh my God, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. When you said Lee Min Ho, I was like, there's no way that you are here watching the kids on this. I can't speak off you, brother. I can't speak I off you. <laughs> listen, listen, we can't speak about this off here. Uh, <laughs> listen, I'm a fan. But, um, yes, but thank you so much for coming. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Um, we're going to close out the episode, and it just going to be 
for everybody who, you know, listen, learn something, understand something, and, you know, reimagine the way they see issues and problems and solutions in the Caribbean. Because yeah. that's basically what Checkmate is, you know? Yeah. Have conversations with young people and stuff, and, you know? Yeah. So, thank you all for listening. I'm Davey, and next episode, definitely paging at you, not me. So, it's going to be a <laughs> smoother episode. <laughs> Later. You've just listened to Checkmate political podcast from tenement yard media we'd love your support to keep the show going for as little as a dollar monthly on our patreon at patreon.com slash tenement yard media you can become a tenant and support us as we educate more people about west indian politics history and sociology that's patreon.com slash tenement yard media to pledge your monthly support or tenementyardmedia.com to make a one-time donation of your choice